on a mission. It's a mission to turn our world upside down. That happens when people hear the good news of Jesus. So get ready for God to turn you upside down. Most people don't seem that interested in the book of Romans. And I find that's true among many believers as well. Just not interested in the book of Romans. And I wonder, why might that be? Well, two reasons come to my mind. First of all, the book of Romans spends a lot of time on the topic of human sin. And not just generically or gently, but the writer, the Apostle Paul, uses some very strong language about human wickedness and immorality. I think that's part of what makes Romans a bit unpopular. I mean, it's kind of depressing to talk about our sin, isn't it? I'll admit that for myself. I would much rather talk about my positives than my negatives. And Romans teaches also that God shows his wrath, his holy anger against our sin, that we deserve God's judgment. And we naturally react against the idea of being judged. As Aretha Franklin sang years ago, we want R-E-S-P-E-C-T. We want respect. As we start to read Romans, we might wonder, is God respecting us in any sense of the word? Will he be encouraging us and lifting us up in any way? Or will he keep on talking about our sin? That's one reason why I think Romans is a bit unpopular. And then a second reason. Frankly, Romans isn't just easy to understand. There are lots of big words in it and some very strange words. Take even that word gospel. We defined that word in the previous episode. There are many difficult words in Romans. Words like righteousness and unrighteousness, justification, atonement, redemption. I'll admit it. The language of Romans is just not that easy. You have to work at it somewhat. But, like many things that you have to work at, there's a big payoff afterwards. As we really understand what Roman teaches about our sin and God's judgment, as we learn these new words and concepts, slowly new light starts to shine upon us. We'll end up with a much deeper love for God. We'll become even more amazed at His mercy, His grace towards us. And we'll end up being much more thankful for everything that Jesus has done for us. And out of that thankfulness, we'll be much more motivated to live for Jesus, to follow after him. So, last time, we learned one of those strange words in the book of Romans, the word gospel. It means the good news, the wonderful message about Jesus. That when we truly trust in Jesus, his death pays the penalty for our sin. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the very source, the very root of our new life in him. The good news of the gospel is, as Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 16, the power of God unto salvation. We are saved. We are rescued by the work of Jesus for us. The next verse, verse 17, tells us even more about this gospel. Quote, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And oh boy, there's another difficult word. 
righteousness, as in the righteousness of God, and the related adjective righteous, that righteous people will live by faith. So what is righteousness? What does it mean to be a righteous person? Well, basically, righteousness is complete moral and spiritual goodness. Moral and spiritual goodness as God defines it. That's very important. You see, we as humans will have our own definition of moral goodness, but God's definition is much, much higher. To be righteous in God's eyes means that we fully obey his holy law, that we are conforming ourselves outwardly and inwardly to all of his commandments. And here's something else so very important. God evaluates our righteousness on the absolute scale, not on some kind of sliding scale. Maybe you know the difference between those scales from back in high school days. Your teachers would grade tests sometimes on a sliding scale. Say of 30 students in a class, the one who got the most answers correct would receive the highest grade, and the student who got the least correct would get the lowest grade. And everyone else was ranked between those two, a kind of sliding scale. But the absolute scale is different. The absolute scale requires 100% correct answers to receive an A. Not 90% correct, not 95%, not even 99% correct. The absolute scale requires 100%. Well, God's scale is like that. It's absolute in that sense. He doesn't say, well, because you're somewhat better than your neighbor, I'll rank you higher on my righteousness scale. No, not at all. In God's eyes, if you break just one of his laws, you are by definition unrighteous. Now, okay, stay with me here. There is going to be good news in all of this, I promise. So Romans 1.17 says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Now that's a summary statement. The last part of Romans chapter 3 and chapters 4 and 5 and 6 are going to give us the details. And we'll be learning in those chapters that we as unrighteous human beings can actually obtain God's perfect righteousness. So that instead of being judged as unrighteous and being condemned by God, we who trust in Jesus will appear righteous, and God will declare us as righteous. We will then be, as verse 17 puts us, puts it, among the righteous ones, the people who live by faith. Well, that's the good news. But first, we need to understand the bad news, the horrible news of the human situation. Let's go on to verse 18. Verse 18 of Romans 1, quote, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We don't have time, obviously, to look at each word and each phrase in these verses, but a key word in verse 18 is the word wrath, as in the wrath of God. Wrath is an old word for fierce anger. Now, we only know human anger. And when we observe the display of human anger, we find that it's often selfish, 
I mean, we get angry because we take offense at people who, who disrespect us or who talk badly towards us or, or who are rude to us, and, and we therefore get angry with them. With God, however, it's different. His wrath isn't selfish or personal in that sense. Rather, it's just in God's nature to be perfectly righteous. So when God sees unrighteousness in us, he reacts with a holy wrath. His wrath is like a hot oven that burns anyone who touches it. It's not about God being offended in some selfish way or having a bruised ego. No, God is much bigger than that. It's simply part of God's nature to react against our godlessness and wickedness in this holy and perfect way with a holy wrath against our unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul says something else very crucial. It's in verse 20, that no human being has an excuse for not knowing about this creator God, this powerful God. Why not? Well, let me quote verses 19 and 20. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, that is, to us human beings. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Now, interestingly, the best of the ancient Greek philosophers, such as Socrates and Plato, reason somewhat correctly about God. They could reason about God somewhat, even apart from the Bible. For example, they reasoned that there couldn't be many gods, as the Greek and the Roman tradition imagined it to be. Rather, they said there had to be one God. Logically, there had to be ultimately one God, and he had to be ultimately powerful, and he had to be ultimately good and the source of all good. Now, Socrates and Plato and others didn't get much beyond that. But wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone today would reason at least that far? That we would agree there must be one ultimate God, a creator God? That this creator God, this divine being, is both powerful and is perfectly good? But instead, this is what happens. Verse 18 says that we, quote, suppress the truth by our wickedness. We suppress the truth by our wickedness. The truth about God implanted in us from creation, we suppress, that is, we push down that truth. We push it to the back of our mind where we promptly forget about it. And Paul goes on in verses 21 and following. For although they, human beings, knew God in that general creational sense, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's more bad news about our natural spiritual condition. That our thinking about God is futile. Another translation words it this way, that we are vain in our reasonings about the creator God. And all this is observably true. Let me ask, would you say, looking at society today, that people generally glorify God as God? Do they generally want to worship God? Do they generally want to pray to God? Verse 21 of Romans 1 says that people don't. And anyone through ordinary observation would end up agreeing with that. 
most modern people just can't be bothered with any deep thoughts about God. Oh, they can be generically religious or spiritual, but to think about God as a creator, as the source of all good, and as the one who has standards of goodness, no. Paul also says that people in general don't give thanks to God. Oh, on this coming Thanksgiving Day, people might be thankful in some sense, but will they give thanks to God? Think of it. God is the ultimate source of our life. He's the source of our heartbeat, our breath. He's the ultimate source of the blue planet Earth. He's given us air to breathe, water to drink, the environment in which we live. And in North America, he's given us additionally a great wealth and opportunity. So yes, people will be thankful. But thankful to whom? To God? No, people will thank their lucky stars. They'll thank their good fortune. They'll thank their parents. But most people will refuse to give thanks to the Creator God. So we should agree with Paul that generally not many people think about God, nor do people give thanks to Him. Now, if you thought the previous words were gloomy and negative, well, the next few verses are even more so. So, Paul is looking with a wide lens at human societies through the ages, and he now gives 21 specific examples of the kinds of unrighteousness that is found in these civilizations among people in general. He starts his list of 21 with the example of sexual immorality, how people degrade their bodies sexually, and that's both with the opposite sex and with the same sex. Sexuality is one of those areas in our lives that has become distorted due to our sin nature. Let's just admit that. It's not only our sexuality, but all aspects of our being are twisted, distorted by sin. In verse 28 and following, the examples of unrighteousness continue. Paul includes things like murder. Murder, well, that's an obvious evil. To plot and carry out the killing of an innocent person. But Paul goes beneath the action of murder. He lists envy as another great wickedness. We might think envy? Simply wanting what other people have? Is that a sin? Is that unrighteousness? Well, simple ambition is good a striving to improve ourselves. But envy? The police tell us that envy is a key motive for murder. People start to crave what others have. They want to take it from them, be it their money, their possessions, their wives or husbands, their boyfriends or girlfriends. It's out of envy, greed, that some people actually will murder others. So let's be sure not to remove ourselves from this list of 21 sins or examples of unrighteousness. I mean, we probably haven't murdered anyone, literally, but at times we enviously crave what other people have. We wrongly envy those things. Human unrighteousness also shows itself in common deceit, deceiving people. This can range from the big public lies of some elected officials to the so-called white lies that any of us will tell. We're constantly spinning, aren't we? We're making ourselves and our work and our accomplishments look much better than they actually are. 
the spin. It's an example of deceit. And that ties in with two other examples from the list of 21. Being proud and boastful. Pride, we did an episode on that way back in the early days. Pride is the most deadly of sins, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Verse 19 mentions gossip, and verse 30, the sin of slander. You see, instead of loving people, protecting their reputations, we love to pull them down by our gossip and slander. So if we take this list of 21 examples seriously, then there's no way we can say we are righteous before God. No, we are unrighteous. We fail God's absolute scale. Oh, yes, indeed, other people are worse in some ways, but here's the point. All of us, all of us are unrighteous. Not one of us is perfectly good as God defines goodness. And let's be honest. Let's admit it. In some ways, our life can be easier without thinking about such a God, the God of the Bible, a God who loves, yes, but a God who is also showing wrath against human unrighteousness. And it's even a bit depressing to know that God thinks we are so unrighteous in our human nature. So it's easier to believe, isn't it, that there's really no God or to maybe conjure up ideas of other kinds of gods. In Romans 1, 23 and following, Paul mentions how some societies made certain human beings as their gods. Think, for example, of the Roman Empire in Paul's day. They regarded Julius Caesar and the other Caesars to be gods. The ancient Egyptians imagined certain animals and reptiles to be gods, like crocodiles and cats, or at least to be godlike. In the 20th century, Nazi Germany held Hitler as a kind of God, a Messiah figure, someone to make their nation great again. And they put out their hands and in a worshipful pose, Heil, Heil Hitler, all hail. We've heard some echoes of that in North America recently. Today, we modern people are sophisticated in that way. We won't have actual statues Uh, images of gold and silver to bow down to, but it's easy to elevate people as being godlike. Or maybe we elevate science with a capital S as almost a kind of God, as a method by which we can know almost everything. Oh, humble science is wonderful, but how easily science leads to pride and arrogance. We easily deify human reason as even being superior to God. How many people today think, in all honesty, that they know things better than the God of the Bible? They think their reasoning is higher than God's reasoning. And there's the deadly sin of pride once again. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to the end of the chapter basically says this. Human hearts and minds, especially in spiritual matters, are foolish. Human reasoning about who God might be and what God might expect is futile. For we're constantly suppressing, pushing down the right knowledge about the true God. Well, let me quickly jump ahead to the good news. It will be coming in the book of Romans after three long chapters about human sinfulness and God's wrath against our sin, we finally come to the good news. It starts in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Let me read those verses. But now, 
apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness of God is given to us through faith in Jesus to all who believe. God's righteousness is given to us. Oh, we'll have much more to say about this in the next two episodes. But for now, know this. God willingly, freely gives his righteousness to us. Yes, in ourselves we're filled with unrighteousness. But God pulls that from us and gives us his righteousness as a gift. And here's how that happens. Basically, Jesus was the only human who proved himself perfect before God, perfectly righteous. Jesus measured up to all of God's laws, not only outwardly but inwardly, in all of his desires and motives and attitudes. Jesus fulfilled the two greatest commandments, to love God above everything else and to love his fellow human beings as much as he loved himself. And then Jesus died a perfectly righteous death. He died on that cross without any complaint or bitterness or vengefulness against his enemies. And God the Father declared his son Jesus perfectly righteous, raising him up from the dead. God then gives this Jesus righteousness as a gift to anyone who simply trusts in Jesus. Our sin is removed, Jesus' righteousness is credited to us, and no longer then does God's wrath fall upon us. Rather, in Jesus, God's love is poured out upon us. Oh, and that's good news. That's wonderfully good news, even for us folks who have already trusted in Jesus. Why is that good news? Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you in the church to you in the congregation in Rome. Why? Because you see, we believers daily continue to fail God. We continue to break his commandments. We sin. Sometimes we sin very awfully. But the gospel is also for us who believe in Jesus already. The good news is that Jesus has taken away our unrighteousness. And even more, Jesus' own perfect righteousness is freely credited to us as a gift so that when God the Father looks at us, he only sees Jesus' perfection covering us. Oh yes, Jesus took God's wrath on the cross and Jesus' full perfection is freely given to us. That's the gospel. When we understand it clearly, then we realize how good is the good news that instead of showing us his wrath, God showers us with his love because of Jesus. This is the heart of the gospel message. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Randall. This podcast is produced by my brothers in Christ, Dennis and Moses. Won't you tell your friends about us? We're Mission Upside Down. Uh, 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 uh.